This morning I would ask you not to turn in your Bibles to anywhere um, because I'm going to be reading a lot of Scripture and if you try to follow along in your Bibles, you're going to spend more time looking for the text than you are listening. And I really would like today for you to listen to the text across church history. vast majority of time nobody's had a Bible. But they've heard the Word of God read. So cultivate that ability today to listen to the Word of God read. Those of you who are visitors, welcome. We're happy to have you here. Um, We are finishing up the book of Matthew. I am going to be a prophet this morning and say it will take 200. Uh, And so that means after today, there will be five more. So if you're keeping track, I expect sometime this summer we will be done. I love you, Kristen. Listen to this. I preached this when Taylor was six years old. And he's now 16 or 17, I don't know which. That's my son. And it's Matthew 16, 10 years ago, March 7th, 1999. Matthew 16:19 Jesus is speaking to the disciples and he says this to them He says I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven we might say whatever is unlocked Whatever's locked, whatever's unlocked. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, he says to the disciples, the apostles. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Last night, my habit is to prepare to preach and then... um, As I'm going to bed, I'll read something entertaining. Just for a few minutes. And then I'll read the sermon over again or one of the precious commentaries. has to be top rated to get read right before I go to sleep. Because I found through the years, whatever I'm meditating on before I go to sleep is what permeates my night. And so last night is my... Interesting reading. I read an article in Wired. Okay. And the article is about this dude, Jewish guy, who's just like my son Joseph, and that is he loves puzzles. And when he was a very uh, young boy back in the 50s, um, he decided that he was going to figure out how to make phone calls at public pay phones without paying for them. And so he beat his head against the phone until he figured out that if you took a penny instead of a dime and you put it in the slot and hit the coin return at just the right moment, the penny would always go through like a dime and he could make nine cents profit, right, or pay nine cents less. So it wasn't free, but it was almost. Then he graduated to figuring out how he could duplicate the tones that the switching system of Bell Telephone used 
and use those tones to make free calls anywhere in the world. Some of you remember the computers that used, they used to dial by duplicating those tones. Remember? Um, you push a button and you go, you know, and even though it wasn't connected by wire, your computer, you could hold your phone up to the computer speaker and it would dial the phone. Any of you remember? Do you remember? <laughs> I used to do that. Okay. So then he figured out how to make the tones, and then he began on walks. And so this whole article was an article about keys and walks. And as I read it, I thought, this is like weird. Because, of course, all my preparation was about keys and walks. And here I was reading this article about keys and walks. Now, here's what this guy's doing now, now that he's in his late 50s. He has taken on a company called Medico, High Security Locks. Some of you in law enforcement, you've heard of these. They're the locks that are on number 10 Downing Street, Buckingham Palace, the White House, Department of Defense, FBI. In other words, if you're seriously interested in having a door shut and not opening, all right, not able to be bumped, all right, you buy Medico locks. And Medico has just come out with the new edition of their high-security locks, Medico 3. And what they announce is it has to meet a certain standard. The standard is that it has to take a minimum of 10 to 15 minutes for anybody to pick the lock. And that's high-security enough because 10 minutes, minimum of 10 minutes, gives you a lot of time to catch somebody trying to break into the Department of Defense or to Buckingham. You can never keep anybody out of anything. It's just a matter of delay tactics and you have patrols, all right? So this guy writes Medico and he says, hey, I, I picked your lock. And they say, no, you haven't. It's unpickable. And they say, oh, no, I picked it. And they say, no, you haven't. And he says, yes, I have. Well, it goes around and around. And, of course, Medico is announcing that this thing is impossible to do in under 10 minutes. And, of course, he's done it, but they don't want to hear about it because they're marketing it, right? And they're marketing it saying minimum 10 minutes. So Condé Nast owns uh, uh, Wired. And so Condé Nast foots the bill to bring a bunch of, like, timers and video cameras and, and to buy a whole bunch of Medico locks, Medico 3s, off the market that have never seen the light of day. So nobody can claim, and they bring judges in. So nobody can say you set it up like Houdini. This is not a trick, right? So they bring all these locks in, and they begin to film, and they time, right? And this dude, right, one of them, seven seconds. Now, think of this man. And what I want you to understand is this man is what the entire world is trying to do with the authority of the church. Every single one of us, the state, every person in the world, has given themselves to a relentless attack upon the authority of the church of Jesus Christ. That's our world. That's our world. We're all lockpickers. It's so deeply ingrained in us that we can't see it. And that's what culture is, things that are so deeply ingrained in us that we can't see them. 
If you think you see something, it's not the culture. But if you don't see it, and if it just burbles out of your mouth, that's because it's culture. Jesus says, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. He gives it to very specific men. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And we've all turned into lock pickers. And the scheme, the conspiracy, the rebellion that all of us are united in is destroying and subverting and denying the authority of the church of Jesus Christ. That's what we're all doing. Now, here's what's interesting. Think of all authority as being just like cosmic karma. All right? Authority is karma. And there's so much karma in the world, right? And you can, like, trade karma, move it. You can, like, package it. You can do anything you want, but you're not going to alter the amount of karma. That's the way authority is. It doesn't matter how much we deny it, how much rebel against it, how much we abdicate it. There's a certain amount of karma. (laughs) Authority karma in the world. Right? And all that's going to happen, if you take it from the church, is what? Inevitably, if you take it from the home, if you take it from the husband, if you take it from the parents, all that's going to happen is what? The state gets it. And so at the beginning of the sermon, I want to say to you, there's no change in authority in the world today. What's changed is who exercises the authority. That's it. That's all it is. And today, the one authority you will not rebel against is the state. And they will meddle beyond your belief. Because they've thrown out all the big laws, and so they micromanage everything. One day I was over on Indiana Avenue, right there at the stop sign. And here's this police officer getting paid. Who knows how much they get paid? And he's standing on a sidewalk looking at cars as they come up to the stop sign. And then he goes like this to the driver and gives them what? A ticket for what? Picking their nose in public? That's coming. No, they didn't have their safety belt on. And if you have a child between the ages of, what, four and eight, who weighs less than such and such and such and such, we now have a law that says they have to be on a booster seat. So with David and Terry Wagner coming home, And Mary and Sarah living with Doug and Heather, and Doug and Heather having a vehicle that seats seven, now, because of the state, they're going to have to make a major financial change in their home or do something illegal in order to seat eight children in their van. And I remember driving to Colorado and back when we all laid back in the, in the, in, on, the, on the deck of our station wagon and played cards and sang hymns and had a jolly time. And I'm here to tell you about it. I could go on and on and on and tell you the ways in which the state controls your life and it will grow and grow and grow and grow. 
That's the trajectory we, we've on. It's the post-enlightenment trajectory. That's why nationalism is absolutely unstoppable. Although one world may be able to stop it, I don't think so. I think they'll find a way of allowing us to be nationalists and one world at the same time. Remember what I said, authority is karma. It's not really, but I'm using that as a concept. And there's only a certain amount of karma. And either the authority is where God has rightfully placed it, or you will be a slave to a harsh taskmaster. Either your children submit to the natural sovereigns that God has placed over them, their father and their mother, or they will submit to an infinite number of other people. Okay? God has ordained three authorities and only three. The authority of the state, the authority of the home, the authority of the church. Now you say, well, what about the workplace? And I say, in the old days, all economies were household economies. All right? And so today we have sort of a whole other set of authority, which is corporations. But really, think of them as households. All right? The state, the church, the home. That's it. You take it from the home, it will go to the state. Has it come to the church? It's laughable. (laughs) No, nothing's come to the church. The church was the first one we killed. The whole reason we're Protestants is so we don't have to have any authority in the church, right? That's why we're Protestants. Tack with the Pope, right? That's why we're Protestants. That's what I hear all the time from you when you tell me how you left the Roman Catholic Church because of the Pope. As a matter of fact, Scott Hahn was a classmate of mine at seminary. And Scott Hahn... There's these guys that exist to try to seduce Presbyterian ministers into the Roman Catholic Church. There's a ton of these guys that have gone into the Roman Catholic Church, my peers, right? So they were after me. They're in Southern California. And they said, let us send you Scott Hahn's tapes. And I thought, yeah, send me Scott Hahn's tapes, right? So they sent me Scott Hahn's tapes. And the first tape was, he said, what is the major, largest problem that Protestant pastors have with Rome? And he said, it's the papacy, the authority of the Pope. And I thought, Scott, you are an absolute idiot. You are insane. But Scott knows the culture. And he knows most Presbyterian pastors are more a reflection of culture than Scripture. And so he passed completely over justification by faith alone. And said, it's the Pope. And he knows us. We hate authority. And so he's saying, you know, if you guys can just get over this thing about the infallibility of the Pope when he speaks ex cathedra, then you'll become Catholics. And I'm thinking, what about justification by faith alone? And and Scott's saying, well, that's not your real issue. You just don't want to be under the Pope. And I say, look, I don't mind being under church authority. I will never say that the Pope has authority that is infallible. I will always say scripture is above the Pope, not equal, let alone below. But nevertheless, I don't have a problem with a pope. I just don't. I can have a bishop. I can have an archbishop. I can have a cardinal. That's not the issue. It's justification by faith alone because that's what Scripture teaches. And after that, it's fiddling with the deck chairs of the Titanic when it comes to Roman Protestantism. Justification by faith alone. Infusion, imputation. That's the issue. All right? But Scott Hahn said, your real issue is the Pope. Why? Because he knows our culture. What's our culture like? Our culture hates authority. And so we're all Protestants now. What that means is we protest the Pope. 
But it's not what we are. We're Protestants because we believe that there's nothing we can do to pay for our sins. And that Christ had to provide the righteousness and the blood without which there is no forgiveness of sins. That's justification. And that it's not a process of us loving Christ and becoming holier as our lives go on and more worthy of heaven until we die with the account not quite adequate and then we go to purgatory. Okay? That's not what we believe because the Bible doesn't teach it. Not because we don't like the Pope, but because the Bible doesn't teach it. That's why. And so you begin to look at this issue of authority and the authority of the church and doctrine and the Pope and and why we're Protestants. And you begin to look at the state and its increasing demands. Now you go on to uh, whole parks and whole parks are smoke free. And now they're not just smoke free, they're tobacco free. You know, the geese can poop in our driveway and we can do nothing about it. But a man can't chew tobacco in a park. And we're all, doo, 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 1984 Apple. Doo, 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 doo. And then our pastor comes to us and says, your daughter is dressing immodestly. Our pastor comes to us and says, your daughter is dressing immodestly. And we call that meddling. Hello! Boggles my brain. Fornication, adultery, divorce, suicide, sexually transmitted diseases, abortion... And if a pastor says to us, your daughter is dressing immodestly, privately, sweetly, cajolingly and wheedlingly, and we say, you're meddling. And then the state comes to us and the state says, your daughter may have an abortion as a minor and you have nothing to say about it. And we're going to give them from the pharmacy we're going to give them abortifacient chemical abortion drugs over the counter. And we're like, the state isn't meddling. Think about this. Now, all I'm trying to get you to do is listen to this sermon with some sneaking suspicion that you might be twisted. That's all. Just with a slightly open mind. Mind. Just a little one. Give me some space. Let me work. Okay? Give me some space. Let me work. I can see your faces. Open your face up. Come on. Give me some space. Let me work. The whole purpose of the Word of God is to be proclaimed. I'm not supposed to suggest things to you. I'm not supposed to wonder publicly. Okay? Pay Tim Keller to do that. You can buy his sermons. 
And they'll do what purchase sermons do. It's my calling to exercise the authority of the head of the household. And listen, if you think I don't know how ugly that sounds and looks, I'm 6'2", I weigh 252. I'm 55 and have gray hair. I'm loud. I'm opinionated. I can give you more reasons why it's obnoxious and ugly. But it doesn't matter. Because it's not about me. Postmoderns, you guys, everything's subjective. Everything's about you and me. No, this isn't about me, and it's not about you. It's about God. It's about His Son, to whom He has delegated all authority in heaven and earth. And it's about His Son giving officers, particular officers, the power of the keys, so that what they bind on earth is bound in heaven, what they loose on earth is loosed in heaven. The whole world is lockpickers, denying the authority of the church, denying the authority of officers of the church, and I will not give in. You think, Luther, here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. That's me. Do you understand that? I don't care if you fire me. Been done there, been there, done that. I don't care if you stop paying me. At the very beginning of my ministry, a guy looked at me and said, if you keep preaching like this, do you think we're going to pay you? And I said, look at the vacuum cleaner. Because I always keep a vacuum cleaner in my office. There's one behind the curtain right now. If you go and pull the curtain back, there's a vacuum cleaner there. And it's not superstitious. I just love vacuum cleaners. I don't have it there to be an object lesson to you. Look at the vacuum cleaner. But if you go in there, you'll find a vacuum cleaner. And actually, they're using it now for the church. So it may not be there. Is it in the closet? Yeah. He asked if he could use it. I said, yeah. I love vacuum cleaners. All right? And I said, look at the vacuum cleaner. Until a little while ago, I was earning my living by cutting grass, trimming trees, cleaning windows, and vacuum cleaners. And you know I miss it because when I got done those jobs, I could point to the work and say it's clean. Whereas in the ministry, I never get to do that. I'd like to get back to that. But let me tell you, if I use the vacuum cleaner, I will not stop being your pastor. You stop paying me, that's fine. But I will still be your shepherd. Okay? Now, if that sounds monstrous to you, that's because you're sucking culture in. That's what you should hear from your mother and your father, from your husband, from your pastors. That's what you should hear from your president. I was listening to the program this last week where somebody was talking about the difference between Barack Obama and George Bush, about terrorism. And this person said, and it was not a partisan statement of the Republicans or Democrats, this person said there's not an ounce of difference between the two of them except in some matters of how they treat prisoners. Other than that, the international war on terror is exactly the same under both of them, despite what Barack Obama said, it's the same. And I got thinking about it, I thought, okay, so what's the difference between Barack Obama, who's so popular, and George Bush, who isn't? You know what the difference is? Barack Obama, everything he does, he panders to you as he does it. Whereas George Bush on the issue of the war, was straightforward and didn't pander to you. That's the only difference between the two. 
Now, on other things, George Bush did pander to you, but we won't get into that because this isn't about politics. But listen, you have elected the perfect president for a time and a day when you want all authority to appear to be equal to you and to appear to have no direction and to appear to be non-invasive, non-intrusive, sort of servant leadership. And Barack Obama is just a perfect expression of that. He's not invasive. He's not intrusive, except to your teenage daughter who can now go to the pharmacy. You know, he's humble when he goes to Europe. He apologizes for the sins of all those stupid idiots that came before him. I mean, he's just the perfect postmodern leader. And that's what all our pastors are. And that's what you as a father are. Everything is done by slate of hands in terms of leadership today. You know, I'm not a leader. Look at the birdie. Look at the birdie. Sweetheart, go change your dress. Look at the birdie. Look at the birdie. Honey, can't you take all her immodest clothes out of her drawer so she can't find any and has to wear pants and a blouse? You know, and yet we don't even do that. We wouldn't think of asking our wives to help us have our daughter be modest. You know, think about it. Everything today is like, well, sweetie, I'm a servant leader. And so I have no expectations for you. But, you know, a servant leader wants to know what your expectations of me are. Well, honey, I'd like to go out to eat tonight. Well, I'm a servant leader. I'll take you out to eat tonight. Well, honey, I'd like you to not jeopardize my future friendship with my children. So shut your mouth and don't discipline my daughter. For her immodesty. Well, honey, I'm here to serve you. I'm a servant leader. So I'll just shut my mouth about our daughter because I don't want to jeopardize your relationship with your daughter in future years. And really, I don't want to jeopardize my getting what I want tonight from you. And so what happens in the home? No authority. None. No authority of the mothers over their children because mothers don't want to jeopardize their future relationship with their children. No authority of the husband over the wife because the husband doesn't want to jeopardize the one thing without which life isn't worth living, namely, you know. That's the sacrament of Western culture today. That's it. And then the church? Who are you kidding me? The church? It's meddling. And when it comes to the church and authority, what everybody thinks is, well, you know, um, they talk about authority in the church, but the only authority I know of in the church is excommunication. And that, so far as we can tell, only happened once in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 5, you know, expel the evil man from among you, and that was incest. And so, you know, yeah, theoretically, there should be authority in the church, and there should be locks and keys and stuff, but I mean, it has to be incest, And so, again, what about the state? The state, Roman says, bears what? The sword. And so all authority of the state amounts to them killing people. Right? And so anytime anybody brings up authority in the state, you always think the sword, the gun, the executioner's chamber. Right? Oh, no. All of a sudden with the state, there's like an infinite continuity of authority of the state. 
It's like everywhere. It extends everything from April 15th to someone who finally, after 20 years of appeals and killing seven women after raping them, may be executed. And the church is just excommunication. Don't you see what you're doing? You know, you're acting as if there's only one act of authority in the church, namely excommunication. But with the state, look at all the authority. It's like, have you ever read the tax code? We have all the nuancing and all the continuity and all the continuum and all the variables of the state's authority. Everywhere, everywhere. Have you ever read the book that you have to read before you take the driver's license exam? All the laws just of how you handle a car. And you know what you're really doing? What you're really doing is conniving at the overreaching of the state and conniving at the destruction of the church. That's what you're doing. This is natural. Then you say, yes, but look at the terrible abuse of authority in the home and in the family and marriages. I say, you're telling me the state doesn't abuse its authority? Anybody remember Waco? Wake up! How about waterboarding? How about dropping a nuclear bomb on citizens, on women and children? And see, now your nationalism is rising up, and you say, how dare he question Hiroshima and Nagasaki? I tell you, it is damnable. And I fear that as much as I fear Abortion when it comes to the judgment of God on our nation. And I say that as a pastor. I don't say that politically. I say that as a pastor. When we begin to firebomb Dresden and to drop nuclear warheads on civilians and women and children because of our higher cause as a nation, it is godless. So now, none of you can accuse me of being a Republican. Do you see? Somehow, I believe Scripture ought to have final authority even over Republicans. Okay? Now listen. The state, the church, the home. Until you begin to think in terms of those three categories of authority for all time being given by God, and you begin to be observant of the ways in which the modern world tries to move all authority to the state, you have not begun to be a thoughtful Christian with a Christian mind. You can't just be a ditz brain. You have to think. You have to consciously know when you give birth to your first child, this government is going to tell you you may not spank your children. And you have to say to yourself, God says, spare not the rod. And if you're not being prophylactic in repeating Scripture to yourself from the moment you know you're pregnant, and if you go into a restaurant and your children act up because they're in the restaurant and little kids are real smart about where they act up, 
And you think to yourself, if I spank my child in public, it may well be that the child will be taken from me. You better begin to decide whether you're going to honor God by spanking your children or whether that's one more area of authority you're going to cede to the state. Because let me tell you, it matters whether you spank your children or manipulate them and guilt trip them. Spanking is far and away the least destructive and the least painful way people use to, 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 to punish their children. Even George Bernard Shaw said that. You know, your child acts up at a restaurant table and your action is firm and quick. Guess what? Your child will learn that it's worse to act up in public than private. And that helps you in facing down the authority of the state. Because all discipline, you want to be private. And so what I learned was, get up from the table, take the child, and as you're walking out the doors of the restaurant, because that's a place where everybody's like really uptight because you're holding the door and I'm holding and they're going in, the hostess, and nobody notices what goes on in doorways of restaurants. And so as I walk through those doors, flip them over on my arm, whop, 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 and it's over. Nobody even knows what happened. I kid you not. And with that child, it's probable that child will not have to be disciplined in a restaurant again. Do you understand this? Are you ceding your authority to the state? Or do you trust God? Will you obey him in the small details? Obeying everything I commanded. Do you remember our text? Here it is. You think I'm off on a rant. I'm not. Listen to the text that we're studying today. Jesus says, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Therefore, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So what? Spanking? You say, oh, but my father spanked me out of temper. I used to have welts on my legs. I know some of you were horribly abused by your fathers as you grew up. And I grieve that. But the illegitimate use of a legitimate tool does not negate its legitimate use. We do not solve the problems today caused by our bad, harsh father, by patricide. Because again, authority is karmic. And if you get rid of your daddies, it will go to your principal and to your teacher. It'll go to your doctor. It will go to your judge. It'll go to your legislator. It will go everywhere else. And all you've done is traded the benevolent authority of the natural sovereign that God has placed over you as a child 
for the non-benevolent authority of the unnatural sovereign over children, namely the state. That's all you've done. And I'm not even talking about the church. I'm not even talking about the church. Let me ask you this. When the state tries to control what goes on at home, is it successful? When the state tries to deal with the violent abuse of a wife by her husband, is it successful? When police go into a domestic quarrel and they try to stop the violence between a man and his wife, are they successful? When a teacher reports a child who is abused and it goes to the Child Protective Services, does the teacher feel that all problems have been solved? (laughs) You do it because you're required by law to do it. You don't have much hope. Now let me ask you another question. Who is capable of stopping abuse in a home? The church. The church. You know what should happen in a church when you find out a woman is being abused? You should tell her, not ask her. Not think with her about it, but as an act of authority, you should tell her to go to the civil authority and report her husband, and that she has no choice because you as elders are requiring her to testify. And guess what? Right there, that deals with the issue of abuse so much better than the state can, because the state can only say, well, if you're willing to prosecute and testify, then we'll go ahead and take it to court, but if you're not willing, then we won't. So she's willing the first night and the second night and the third night, but the fourth night, he's gotten a hold of her again. And he wheedles and cajoles. And she says, oh, honey, I know I was partly responsible. And she goes back to being beaten. But the elders come alongside of her and they say to her, it is a violation of the covenant that man made to consider you his wife. And you will not beat her while you are a member of this church. Because if you do, we will rebuke you privately admonish and rebuke you privately. We will bring you into the full elders board if two elders don't work. And then we'll rebuke you in front of the full elders board. We'll spend many, many hours counseling you. We will work with you. If it still doesn't work, then we will take it publicly and we will rebuke and censure you in front of the congregation. Now, let me ask, do you think that might work? How would you like me to know your most secret sin right now and say it to the whole congregation? Uh, Lane, come here, please. (laughs) Come here. If Lane is beating his wife, and he doesn't have one, if Lane is beating his wife and I were to admonish him and say, brothers and sisters, would you pray for Lane? Lane has been beating his wife. Can you imagine the beautiful authority that would be? And Lane is crying and humiliated and he's red and his wife finally, what does she feel? She feels vindicated because the whole church looks him in the eye and says, you will not touch her. And the moral authority and the shame and all of a sudden, guess what happens? Women are safe again. And if he continues to beat her, what do we do? He goes to jail. He's excommunicated. That's what happens. 
All authority has been given to me in heaven. Now, I want to say a word about that, in heaven. Mary Lee's family has a business called Tindale's Publishers. And that business is owned by a uh, uh, foundation. And they published a series of books that busted the markets of the United States called Left Behind, Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye. And here is why they sold. Because Christians today are real big on Jesus' authority. In heaven. In heaven. And so all of us could read those books and engage in the escapism of having already been taken, and now the authority of Jesus comes to earth once we're safely in heaven and have no more obligations. You know? And we're looking down through the periscope to that nasty earth with all those people left behind. But don't worry, we're in heaven. We have no more fiduciary obligations. And it's, it's such a vicarious thrill to see what happens to those nasty pagans once we don't have any more obligations because we're in heaven. My dad used to say that evangelicals had an eschatology of, and a theology that, that, that only had two points. One point is when you're born again, and the other point is when you go to heaven. And there's absolutely nothing in between. No suffering, no persecution, no tribulation, and certainly no sanctification because we're saved by grace. And certainly no threats and no admonitions and no corrections and no rebukes and no blood, sweat, and tears because you're saved and then you go to heaven. And my dad used to say to an evangelical, once you're saved, you might as well die and go to heaven immediately because there's nothing left. And so left behind a market capitalization of $1 billion. Real popular, Jesus in heaven. Because then the authority is purely benevolent, right? Well, not exactly, because in heaven he will judge those who have spurned the cross. But we all read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry Blood by Edwards, and we realize those Puritans were twisted, and that's the closest we ever get to any sermon on hell our whole lives. And so even Jesus' authority in heaven is purely one-sided. It's God's yes and always. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. What do we do? We go, therefore, and tell them the buses will wait and ask them to pray the sinner's prayer because they'll have so much more of an integrated life. Their children will all become good-looking. They'll ACA SATs. And they'll know enough to go to Wheaton College. 
and they won't play soccer during church on Sunday. And if they're Presbyterians, they'll drink scotch. And if they're Baptists, they'll have big hair. And if they're Episcopalians, they'll go to Washington and make laws. And then they'll all die and go to heaven. And really, denominations add to the diversity, and diversity is a nice thing. And none of them, what they'll all hold in common, is not one of them will exercise any authority. There will be no authority. The preaching will be all suggestions and innuendo and wonderings and fellow pilgrimage discovering one anotherings. And the tone will be modulated. It'll be, oh, um, and the head will be slightly cocked, the eyes gazing off into the distance. And the hands... Can't you just imagine the Apostle Paul with Eutychus? Everything about the church today is a shell game to deny that Jesus Christ has authority on the church, that he has delegated it to specific men. And that those men one day will be accountable for how they exercise the authority that Jesus Christ has delegated to them. Do you understand this? You will too, as a father. You will be held accountable for your authority over your wife and your children. Doesn't matter what I say to you. Doesn't matter what your relatives say to you. Doesn't matter. God will judge you. If you allow your children to grow up dating unbelievers and because you're held in bondage to their approval and affection, you do not forbid it. One day your son will be blinded and he'll be standing between the pillars and his hair will have been cut, but it'll have grown back. And the most faith-filled thing he'll ever do will be to commit suicide as the Philistines die around him. That'll be the fruit of you allowing your children to marry Canaanites. Samson, God has given you authority. And it is your obligation to exercise it. When I first came to Bloomington, I went to a church that had lost hundreds of its people in the two years before I came because they hadn't liked the previous pastor. So then they got me thinking I'd be very popular. True story. So the first sermon, I preached a sermon on the authority of the Word of God. And after the sermon was done, the head elder, who was a muckety-muck in the business school, professor, called me up and said, Tim, would you mind if we began each week's elders meeting with a critique of your preaching and your worship leadership? 
Well, I'd read books about the gauntlet and Indians and whites. And I knew that if you weren't going to get hit hard, what you needed to do is that you needed to act like you didn't feel any of the blows. And so I said, yeah, I'd be happy for you to do that. So I went in my first elders meeting every week. And the first thing that was said to me, I won't tell you because it was just laughable. And why did you wear a black suit? That was their first criticism. And I looked at him and he had on a Harris tweed with leather elbow patches. And I said, well, because you're wearing a Harris tweed with elbow patches, and that's a uniform on the campus, and black suit's a uniform Sunday morning. <laughs> Back then. And so uh, the second question was, <clears throat> Pastor Bailey, and of course when anybody calls you Pastor Bailey, you know what they're really thinking is, jerk. (laughs) Don't ever call me Reverend because I know what's coming. Uh, Pastor Bailey, um, uh, why did you make such such a direct statement of the authority of Scripture in your first sermon? And I said, and this is all verbatim, quote, I said, because I wanted everyone to know what the benchmark for the ministry of the word from the pulpit of this church will be as long as I'm here. And then he went, he said, don't you realize that there are men in this church who don't have the same presuppositional basis that you have? And I said, duh. I didn't say that, actually. I looked at him and I said, yes, and that's why I did it. And then I had an appendicitis attack. Went to the hospital and had my appendix taken out. It's the only time I've ever been to the hospital. For me. What was going on there? What was going on was he was making every statement he possibly could to warn me that he would emasculate the authority of the office of pastor of the preaching of the word that he was an opponent of the living God a few minutes later or a few months later his actions got worse and worse I did everything I could to please him everything short of selling off the authority of God. A few months later, I went over to his house one day. I said to him, uh, I want you to know that from this point out, I am going to do everything I can to remove you from your position as elder and from the church because you are a wolf among God's sheep. There will no longer be a truce between us. I said to him, I love you. And I'm doing this because I love you and I love the sheep. And I said, I might lose. But one thing is certain, either you will be gone or I will be gone. He won. I have no regrets. I view that as one of the most glorious times in my life when I stood for God's authority, not my own. A few months later, I got a letter. There was a group of men that would gather over on the campus to talk about our church. They were all academics and grad students. They were all friends. This man was the leader of that group, and this was another one of the men who was actually a professor at the university. 
And that man wrote me a letter after a few months because he hated the preaching of the word that I was doing. And his letter said this. He said, the authority of Christ over the church is only taught in Scripture by implication rather than directly. The authority of Christ over the church. Now, we're not talking me. The authority of Christ over the church is only taught in Scripture by implication rather than directly. And nowhere in the New Testament is there any indication that Christ exercises authority over the church. Rather, he shares his authority with the church. He went on to say, headship cannot possibly, kephale, Greek, headship cannot possibly carry the meaning of authority in Scripture with respect to Christ's headship over the church, since at best, headship, kephale, is ambiguous. And headship is never equated with authority. Therefore, teaching which equates references to headship with authority may be based on modern concepts which are at variance with the teachings of the New Testament. Oh, yeah. Go back into the ancient world and it's just like egalitarian feminist utopia. (laughs) Potentus? Patria? Then he goes on. References to Christ as Lord, curious, okay, Greek, could be interpreted as references to authority, could be but do not necessarily carry any such meaning. Such references are general and appear to exalt Christ rather than to assert his authority over anything in particular. Nowhere in the New Testament are church leaders in general said to have authority. There is no general reference to the authority of church leaders in the New Testament. And he has a Ph.D., And it's not in the hard sciences. Listen to Ephesians 5.23. And those of you who are women, I'll spare you the pain of the first half of the verse. As Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. The church submits to Christ. Ephesians 5.24. Submits. Head. Submits. Head submits. Submits. Head. Ephesians 5.23 and 24. Colossians 1.18. He, Christ, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. I mean, we could go on and on and on with such scripture. This is Christ he's attacking. And when you get done with the didactic, then you hit the narrative. Ask yourself, what does this appear to be? Jesus entered the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, 
my house, my house, my, my, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. I never noticed until last night the parallel account in Mark 11. Listen to this. Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling. They're not a momentary temper tantrum. He began driving out. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And listen to this. I never saw this before. He would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. He didn't just clean it out and then got out of there and said, well, that nasty job is done the way you are a father in your home. But if that child who was spanked, when you got done spanking that child, that child stiffened his back and screamed bloody murder, Jesus would not allow them to carry merchandise through the temple area after he threw up their tables. He then had the will to follow through what would honor his father. Is this authority? And today, we're not content with coffee. It has to be Starbucks in our lobbies in Narthesis. The whole evangelical world is an orgy of materialism. And so after this happened, we read the chief priests. This is the next verse. I'm just reading... Continuously, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the crowd was amazed at his teaching. And what was it they were amazed at his teaching about? What was it? He had authority! Not like their teachers. That's what the Bible says. Jesus finally came along, and it wasn't one footnote after one citation after one footnote, and then you produce the H index, and y'all can, like, look at me and look at you, and Eric is probably the best in this church, but in many places, Eric would be nothing, and, and we all, and did you see John Piper quoted Mark Deaver, and did you see Dar- Mark Deaver quoted Ligon Duncan, and did you see Ligon Duncan knows Wayne Grudem, and did you see Wayne Grudem preaches for Saddleback occasionally, and you know, Rick Warren is now not having to go to Christian publishers. He can go to the secular ones and get the front of borders. And, and Rick Warren cites Norman Vincent Peale. Norman Vincent Peale knows the son of Robert Schuller, And Robert Schuller has the Crystal Cathedral. And did you know that Diane Bish used to play for... And do you, do you realize that Tim Bailey's dad was Joe Bailey, but his father-in-law was Ken Taylor. He did the Living Bible. And, and do you know how much Left Behind sold? And you know the Taylors. And, and do you know our pastor has 5,000... Sheep, he milks. And our budget is five. And do you know that we have a 30,000 square foot? And do you know we have a 220-acre campus? I mean, you guys, listen. I'm mocking it because this is how every single pastor group talks. What are you running? I'm running. This number of sheep. Running sheep. Running them, running them, milking them, slaughtering them, eating them. Do you care for them? Do you care for them? Do you 
do painful things. Listen, do you know there's an old English word called sinecure? Anybody heard sinecure? You know what a sinecure is? It's in a state-run church where the living, that's how they refer to a pastorate, the living is sold to a man, and that man then milks the living for certain income and hires a subordinate, usually a young pastor, to take over the cure of the souls of that church. He's the curate. Okay, so think of this. A sinecure is Latin, without cure, without cure. So the man that holds the living for that church, all right, he sells the job to another man who takes less money than this man gets for the, for the church. So say he gets $1,000 a year, 1,000 pounds a year for the church. He then subcontracts out to another dude the job of carrying it, 750 as a profit of 250 That profit is called a sinecure. And that's what every pastorate in the Western world is today. It is you getting fleeced and milked so that you will buy the books and download the sermons and pay money for them and pay your pastor well. And how well your pastor pays is a function of the neighborhood the church is in. And so there's an old statement, it might as well be he who drives fat oxen should himself be fat. You know, don't muzzle the ox, it's transmogrified into it, might as well be he who drives fat oxen. So if you're in Carmel, <laughs> lucky day. If you're in Bloomington, east side. And who wants to be in Poland? It's a town west of here. We actually have some people from Poland. Come on, raise your hand so they know it's true. Right on, dude. People, listen. Jesus says this. Listen to it. It's Jesus who says it. It's not me. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples. You're to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You're to teach them to obey everything I commanded you. That's my job. And I will be judged one day on the basis of how I do that job. If I see your wife straying into adultery, and I see this all the time, I know what women are on the make in this church. Do you think I don't know? If you had a doctor who wasn't aware that you had cancer and that half his patients had terminal illnesses and he was completely oblivious to it, would you keep paying him? What do you want? You want your doctor to be with cure, but your pastor to be sinecure? The first thing that happens when you go in a, pastor's, in a doctor's office is what? The first thing, I always tell you this, the first thing, he says, strip. And you say, oh, but my, my dignity, my precious dignity would be hurt. And a pastor says, strip. And you say, how dare you meddle? And one, it's just life. Don't fear those who can kill the body but not the soul, but rather fear the one who can throw both body and soul into hell. The pastor cares for you for eternity before the living God. And the doctor only gives you a few more years. And him, you'll strip for, just like that. If he tells you to take, you know, you know, 
chemicals that are going to kill you and, and hopefully save you at the last moment. Chemotherapy, right? You'll do it. If he tells you to take this, that, and the other thing, if, you know, he tells you to submit to how many bolts of shock in your brain so you won't be depressed anymore. You'll do anything he tells you to. You'll strip when you walk in. You'll do any drugs he tells you to. You'll do, you'll do anything for the doctor. But when the pastor comes to you and says, have you noticed that your daughter is dressing immodestly? We say, that nasty meddler. And I go to you. What do you take me for, a fool? You think I should fear you instead of God? You take me for a fool? Do you think I'm an idiot? You think I should fear you? Why would I fear you? That would be stupid. (laughs) Because if I fear you, I will stand before God one day and give an account for your souls. And if I have seen the enemy coming, the sword coming against you, and I have not warned you, your blood is on my head. I will fail as your pastor right and left. I'll have a temper tantrum. I'll have bad breath. I'll wear blue jeans Sunday morning. I won't wear blue jeans on Sunday morning. I'll have music you like, music you don't like, music that's too loud, music that's too soft. You know, I'll violate your dignity. I'll ask you to strip. And I don't mean, don't worry. It's not physical. It means I will actually ask you, if you come in the office and it's premarital, as all our pastors will, are you intimate sexually with each other at this point in time? I had a pastor say to me a couple days ago, he said, you know, Tim, I have this nasty habit of asking couples that are asking to be married that question. And he said, you know something? He said, I don't know why I do it. It causes such problems for me what he actually said now he was joking and I said so what's your percentage absolutely orthodox strong Dutch reformed church this percentage is 50% are intimate already when I say when you come into the pastor's office when you meet with the elders they'll ask you to strip I don't mean clothing I mean they'll ask you if you're a wife Are you giving sex to your husband or aren't you? And you go, how dare you violate my precious dignity? And I'll say to you, the Apostle Paul explicitly addresses that very issue in the Word of God under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Why would the Holy Spirit do it with Paul in written form? And you don't want me to ask you whether you're having sex with your husband? Because it's undignified? Because it's invasion of privacy? And the federal government would tell your daughter she can go down to the abortionist and kill your grandchild, and you have no right to know. And you just go, um de dum de dum de dum And I say to you, your daughter is immodest. Would you please do something about it? I say it privately. I say it hugging you. I, I kiss you afterwards if I know you. I do everything I can to make it as sweet an interposition of myself with your daughter as I can, everything I can, everything I possibly can. And you call it meddling? Listen, here's the truth. The truth is I know how to be a rebel and I know how to be metrosexual. I know how to be postmodern and I know how to be emergent. I was, I was born that way. Pierce my ear in 74, 75. 
long Roger Daltrey hair. Can you see the real me? Can you? Okay. And God, in his mercy, rescued me. And I'm here as a testimony, not to Tim Bailey, not to his dad, and certainly not to Mary Lee, because she didn't help for the first ten years. She fought me. But God got me, and God said, you have to be the head of your home. And then when I became a pastor, all hell jumped, combat boot on top of me. But God rescued me and said, you must be a shepherd of your sheep. Not a sinecure. And then I got fired here in Bloomington. And God rescued me and gave me a congregation that loves me best when I preach this way. You know, I look at you people and I think, you know, everybody thinks it's me. But it's not me. It is the faithful, godly, submissive women of this church that gives you a pastor like me. Do you understand that? Do you think women who are submissive don't have authority and power? Do you know how much authority and power I get out of Joyce Huck? And do you know who is the first woman to speak up and silence women who try to take authority over this congregation when they do it? We allowed it once. And do you know who jumped combat boots on that woman? Actually not. She jumped on the elders and held us accountable for what had happened. Joyce Huck. Because Joyce Huck was going to be the president of the United States because Joyce Huck married a man that she knew she could lead. This is what Joyce tells us, right, Joyce? And then God brought Joyce to the liberty, despite her brilliance, despite her discernment, despite her discipline, despite multitasking that makes any other computer operating system in the world obsolete. She became submissive. And when we meet in elders' meetings, I know that Joyce Huck and her submission are the strength of the men who are the elders and pastors of this church. It's the women of this church who are submissive and competent, who allow the elders and pastors to lead. There are strength. There are moral authority. There are proof of the pudding. And they're happy. And their children are happy. And their daughters are strong and their sons are pretty. Now that's Garrison Keeler. He's been twisted since he moved from Minnesota to Manhattan. Their daughters are feminine. And their sons are masculine. And one day they'll marry, and the husbands will lead the wives, and the wives will submit to their husbands. And they'll go to churches that they'll carefully select where the authority of God, the authority of the head of the church, Jesus Christ, and the authority of the Word are not trimmed and diced and quartered and drawn and pulled and, and, and not corrupted by the wicked day that we live in. And I get to serve one of those churches. And I have all these friends that are in the largest churches in the country now. 
good friend of mine, pastor of Highland Park Presbyterian Church. Any of you know this? Highland Park down in Dallas? None of you have ever heard of Highland Park? That's where all the Hunt brothers went, you know, corner of the silver market. Another friend was T. Boone Pickens, pastor in Amarillo, Texas, pastor of Hollywood Pres, pastor of 10th Presbyterian, all these muckety-muck churches. I wouldn't trade one of those churches in an instant for this church because you know what is absolutely of priceless value is a clear conscience as a father, as a mother, as a pastor. I go home after this, and I hate a lot of my rhetorical devices. I can't stand listening to myself preach, but I believe in the substance of what I preach. And I think, thank God I'm at this church. Jesus said what? Jesus said, I give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Jesus said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Those of you who are rebels against authority, I understand you completely. But you are in bondage. It looks like freedom, but it's bondage. Those of you who are submissive to authority, you are free. Yes, your authority is sinful. Often wicked. There's no authority vested in any man in history that has not been exercised by a wicked man. That's the nature of the fall. Nevertheless, God has given that authority. You know that the Bible says, if you abide in me, if you obey my words, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, what? Actually, I'm conflating two texts. So let me give you the right one. And it's in my last page. This was a 29-page, 28-page sermon. And I think I've looked at three. This is John 8:32. Some of you know it by heart. Let me read it to you. Jesus says this, 31 and 32. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who would have believed him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the... You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth is, authority existed in the garden prior to the fall. Authority exists in the Trinity. The Father exercises authority over the Son. The Son submits to the Father. He's delegated authority to the church. If you submit to the authority of the church, sometimes you'll go down a bad road because your authority will be wrong. Nevertheless, if you submit to the authority that God has delegated, you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. That's the truth. Talk to Mary Lee. Ask her what it was like to fight over egalitarian feminism for the first 10 to 15 years of our marriage. Ask her. 
Ask her what it's like to live with a pig-headed, stubborn man as her head. Ask me what it's like to live with a perfectly submissive wife. She's not. But man, what a marriage of love. Hard work. Submission and authority. And now the church. People, give yourself to the authority of the, the Bible. The Bible. Give yourself the authority of your pastors and elders. Give yourself to the authority of your father and mother. Did you hear what I said, teenagers? Give yourself to the authority of your father and your mother. Mothers and fathers, you have an obligation for the character of your teenage children. Let's pray.